for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Today you get to meet a guy whose work has been influencing my own work and my own life for over 30 years. His name is Michael J. Gelb, and you might be familiar with his most famous book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, which was featured for 22 seconds in the original Italian job movie. But his main influence on on me has been uh, Thinking for a Change, Lessons from the Art of Juggling, and his first book, Body Learning, which I encountered um, in 1988 and honestly changed my life and taught me about the idea of the body being a container for emotions and an expressor of emotions and our function and our physiological and psychological functions being to some extent mirrors of each other, which was a hugely important understanding for a then 23-year-old who had kind of dismissed the body as sort of a thing that just carries my head around from place to place. Michael's latest book is, or one of his latest books anyway, he's very prolific, is called The Healing Organization. And I have to say, while I can be very cynical and negative and look at what's wrong everywhere, Michael has a beautiful ability to see the possibilities, the positives, the love, the kindness, and the potential in all of us and in our civilization. So I found it to be an uplifting and instructive conversation. So without further ado, Michael J. Gelb, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Great to be with you. So this conversation is at least 34 years in the making. Um, you're, as I told you the other day when we first uh, chatted, your book, Body Learning, um, changed my life in, in ways that have become amplified over the years. Um, it was a, you know sort of significant but small changes when I read it, but those led me in directions, into directions and directions, and I'm sure my life would be totally different if I had not accidentally stumbled upon it in a, in a, a landlord's bookshelf in London in 1988. So first of all, publicly, thank you. My greatest pleasure. Thank you. So um, was that your first book? It was. It was originally my master's thesis. I wrote the master's thesis in 1978. That's when I got my master's degree in psychophysical re-education from Goddard College. And then a few friends read the thesis and they said, my God, you've taken this complex, nuanced subject and you made it so simple and accessible. They said, I know a publisher, let me send it. I said, sure, two, two of my friends did that and both publishers made me an offer. And one of them had actually taken Alexander Technique lessons. So I went with that publisher. So all of a sudden, I was an author. And then it got, it got translated into 16 languages. And last year, I released the 40th anniversary special edition. I just did an update of everything I've learned in the last 40 years. Uh -huh. 
about the principles of body learning. Wow. So first of all, I got to say, I'm amazed that you were able to take a master's thesis and turn it into a popular book, because after I wrote my master's and, and doctoral dissertation, I couldn't write anymore. I was I had lost the ability to write in active voice. I had lost the ability to, <laughs> to, to say anything clearly. I had lost the ability to make any kind of unequivocal statement. So you must have had to, you must have gone to a different kind of school to be able to write a master's thesis that was actually readable by the public. Well, it's it's, it's fascinating that you bring that up because the process of translating it from a master's thesis into a book was the process of relearning how to say things more directly and, and, and even more simply and obviously less academically and making it more and more accessible. It was only years later when I wrote How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, I got some great advice from my editor. He said to me, this book is not about Leonardo da Vinci. He said, it's not even about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. He said, this book is about the reader and the reader's experience. So what, what, how do you want to benefit that reader? How do you want to touch that reader? And when I look back, the process of translating my master's thesis into my first book was the process of writing for the reader, as well as myself, being true to myself, of course, as opposed to writing for the master's committee at Goddard College. <laughs> that, and that, that's probably the most valuable part of the whole experience is that uh, being, being able to communicate with people. Well, that, that's, that's a lifelong interest and passion. In my most recent book, actually, two of my last three most recent books are about how to improve your ability to communicate with other people. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I want to go back even further. Like, so you, you the, the word you used was like psycho neuro reeducation. Did I regurgitate that accurately? Uh, not, uh, psychophysical reeducation, psychophysical. Re of the mind and the body. Okay, so what kind of kid grows up to get a master's? Like, who who were you when you were little? What was interesting to you? How did you how did you find your way into this really esoteric world, which is no longer esoteric? By the way, but at that point, you know, you you've got to find this, you know, these sort this sort of marginal Australian actor who, like, like you were you were really digging in the the marginalized scrap heap of, uh, you know, you were finding things that the that the world of academia was not even aware of. Like, who who were you as a kid that made you interested in this? Well, I think like lots of other kids of my generation, growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust, I was born in 1952, trying to make sense of that, having a sense, which was not, you know, it's interesting, it wasn't something they talked about, but my parents were 
effectively expressions of the notion of tikkun olam, of the notion of healing the world. Mm. They, they, my dad was an oral surgeon taking care of people. He, he specialized in fixing the bad dental work that people had received from somebody else mm. and in helping people who had been beaten up or been in terrible accidents and needed their faces put back together. I mean, I just remember him leaving our house at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning to go to the hospital emergency room and take care of somebody. Mm. And he was renowned because besides being a brilliant clinician, he understood that people were nervous when they went to the dentist and he knew how to make people feel safe and reassured. And my mom became a psychotherapist. She used to work at the Passaic County Mental Health Clinic. Yeah, so you grew up in she, New Jersey? Her clients were... Yeah. Where? Uh, well, I grew up in Passaic and Clifton. I was born in Jersey City. Okay. Okay. I'm a Newark boy myself. Well, there you go. My dad's from Newark. My grandparents were in Newark. Okay. Uh, so, so my mom would... You have people referred by the criminal justice system, literally murderers and, and sociopaths and abusers of all of all kinds. And she was gifted in being able to help people and see the humanity in people who had very difficult lives and very challenging circumstances. So it never really occurred to me to do anything that wasn't about healing either not just healing the world, but also healing myself. Those were actually my, my criteria was how can I find a path that will help me be more of a whole person so I can transform my own suffering and how can I help transform the suffering of the world? And that, that led me to study psychology, because I figured my mom told me she was a psychologist and she told me the mind is the key. Mm. When I very early on, she told me the mind is the key. She also told me another great piece of advice. She said, always use your neurosis creatively. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking for, for how to do that. And I said, well, I want to learn about the mind. So I went to Clark University, which is the place that Freud and Jung came when they first came to the United States. And I thought it was a small school with a legendary psychology department. This is the place I can learn about the mind. And I did learn a tremendous amount. I loved my time at Clark, but it was all theoretical. So I, I, then I finished the psychology major and I switched to philosophy. I said, maybe the philosophers have a deeper insight. Mm. And can, I love philosophy too. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit about the the what theory? Like, was it Freudian or, you know, like what, what were what were you learning at that point? This is in the like early to mid 70s, right? Uh, it was 1970 to 73. That's when I was at Clark. Mm -hmm. Well, the Clark specialty was uh, perceptual psychology of perception in those years. But they also had this really great program where if there was something you wanted to learn and you made a cogent, persuasive proposal, they'd find someone to teach it. And my friend and I became really intrigued by Jungian psychology. 
So Clark created a, a seminar on Jung for us. Uh -huh. And at that time, I thought I was going to go to Zurich and become a, a Jungian therapist. So I, I, I wound up, I, I didn't do that because it still felt to me uh, too disembodied. And, and I, I had a sense that an intuition, because I'm a very kinesthetically oriented kind of person, I was very athletic. I played soccer at, at Clark. I played basketball. I played tennis. Uh, I was on the wrestling team in high school. So sports were my life, other than uh, my, my passion for learning about the mind. And I had an orientation towards how do you embody all this, this wisdom. And I wasn't getting that from psychology or philosophy. So I actually accelerated my work at Clark and managed to complete my degree in three years. And I went off to England to spend a year studying the spiritual traditions of the world with a genius named J.G. Bennett. And that was an incredible opportunity. We, we learned meditation from the abbot of a Cambodian Buddhist monastery. We learned the insights of Sufism and the wisdom of the Hindu tradition, mm. all the traditions of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, Bennett was, was able to bring out the essence in a very practical way of all these traditions. Mm. Did you did you at any point feel a little awkward being like a Jewish boy from the suburbs? Like this is like sort of like, you know, Hare Krishna or, you know, like somehow a um, a repudiation or a, a rejection of a tradition? Uh, not at all, because uh, I always looked for what, what are the universe. To, my sense is I had a criteria. If something is true, it must be universally true. Mm. So if there are great insights from Judaism and great insights from Christianity and great insights from Islam and great insights from Hinduism, Buddhism and Taoism, and from various Aboriginal traditions around the world, what do they all have in common? So you know, Aldous Huxley called it the perennial philosophy. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I gravitated kind of effortlessly towards seeing what were these universal truths. And actually one of my early mottos became, and still is, it's either universal truth or it's bullshit. <laughs> 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 and I, I realized that the nature of the tradition, the, the language, the rituals, wasn't the essence of any of these things. What the essence was and is, is the, is the underlying enlightenment and, and, and universal truth. And that, so that's what I was fascinated by. And then how to embody that universal truth. So I, you know, I spent this year studying these universal truths in a profound way, had amazing experiences of connectedness with all of creation and cosmic consciousness. 
except I was then 21 when that was finished. I say, okay, now what I'm going to, what am I going to do in the world? How am I going to actually function in the world? And, you know, as you might imagine, all the big philosophy companies didn't approach me with job offers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I, I thought of going to medical school, but in those days, there was no integrative medicine. There was no real holistic MD program. It was about studying disease, which I was interested in optimal health. Mm -hmm. And I thought of getting my PhD in clinical psychology, but you had to, you had to study neurosis and psychosis. And I wanted to study creativity and human potential. So fortunately, while I was at Mr. Bennett's school, I experienced some lessons in the Alexander technique. And this, this was just one of the great, great experiences of my life. I realized that there was a whole world of poise and freedom and ease that could be discovered through the application of Alexander. And I thought it was so wonderful. It just you know, the truth is, it felt so good when I had an Alexander lesson. I was just float down the hallway. Mm -hmm. Movement became effortless, and, and and I just thought. I wish I could have an Alexander Technique teacher with me all the time, which I couldn't afford. So I decided to become one. <laughs> so I trained for three years as a teacher of the Alexander Technique. And where was that? Uh, from 1975 to 78. Was that in London? In London, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that is? Because I've never talked about it. This is like the 510th episode of this podcast. I've never talked about Alexander Technique, but it really is foundational. I don't do I don't use it or do it. But the understandings and the, so as what you would call the universal truths in Alexander, you know, play out in in all in the yoga that I do and Feldenkrais and um, body work, path work, everything is is related to to that. Can you talk about it? I'm <laughs> sure. Well, Feldenkrais, Feldenkrais, uh, studied with Alexander, and he actually had Alexander Technique lessons with my main teacher. Uh, Walter Carrington gave Moshe Feldenkrais 10 Alexander Technique lessons way, way back, uh, right around the time that Feldenkrais was writing Body and Mature Behavior. Once again, I look for the universal truths between yoga, Feldenkrais, Alexander, uh, tai Chi, Qigong, Aikido. Uh, I've studied all of those disciplines and, and my nature is to look for the commonalities and the universalities and how to integrate them and bring them forth. But the genius of Alexander was his insight that use affects functioning and we have a choice about how we use ourselves. So in other words, it's not just heredity and environment that determines the quality of your life, you can choose to have greater poise and alignment and ease in your movement. And the real genius of Alexander, the most distinctive thing about the Alexander technique itself, as opposed to the principles, is he worked out a way to guide people's movements so that you can get the experience of lightness and ease directly by working with an Alexander Technique teacher. 
And that, that, that ex, the transmission of that experience of lightness and ease is unique in my experience. That the closest touch I've, I've ever felt to a great Alexander Technique lesson is uh, the touch of a few Qigong masters mm. who've, who've worked with me, where everything just seems to, to align and come together and tensions fade away. So it's an, it, it's, and that's, you know, that's what happens if you have a great yoga class or a great uh, Feldenkrais session uh, or even a wonderful walk in the woods. Uh, what Alexander does is uh, serve as an accelerant and a catalyst for that experience of wholeness and oneness. And that's why it takes three years to train to become an Alexander Technique teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the so thing- there's a little bit of, there's a yeah. little bit insight into it yeah so what i I mean we've talked the whole time about it yeah yeah i mean what i found exciting about the i found the book to be intellectually exciting even when it was completely theoretical to me right because that you know the next thing i did i was in london at the time is i went and found your teacher robin simmons and spent all of my money on him um but what i loved just reading the book was this idea that the, the ideas you brought forth intellectually was one of them was, we all think we're doing right, but we, how do we know whether our concept of right is right? Right. <laughs> right. Which was so profound. Great, uh, one of my favorite. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, that's why one of the things I, I like to say now is that if you're not humble, you're not paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the discrepancies, what is self-knowledge? It's becoming aware of this discrepancy between who you think you are, what you think you're doing, and what you're actually doing. <laughs> and it's whether that's learning to give a, a speech and noticing that you have all sorts of unnecessary gestures and that you said um and on 19 times. I was coaching somebody just the other day who said like 25 times in a few minutes, and she wasn't aware of it. So I was like, and he was like, and it was like, so I said, it's like, the, so, and the, the key is we all, that's for all of us. We're all, we'll all be humbled when, if there's video on us all the time, we see the difference between what we think we're doing, how we think we're perceived and what we're actually doing and the way we're perceived. The key is not to take that as an assault on your ego and a failure and a mistake, but rather as a wonderful learning opportunity to say how fascinating and note that discrepancy and then see if you can bridge the gap and then rinse and repeat for the rest of your life. Right, right. And, you know, and that goes along with the, with the second thing that I read. This is a book I read, you know, again, 34 years ago. And so there's things that I remember you know, almost photographically, like what part of the page it was on. It was a little paperback. Um, the other was the idea of inhibition. If you want to change, it doesn't start with doing the new thing. It starts with slowly noticing and inhibiting the old thing, whether it's saying like and just slowing yourself down or not throwing the juggling ball and simply noticing what happens when you throw one and where it lands or in the case of, you know, the people that I'm helping to change their health habits to simply pause 
But like that, that was the most profound sort of educational theory I had ever come across. And it's so simple and it's so hard to do because it requires a kind of courage. Well, I'm just thrilled that you remember that from 34 years ago, because that's that's exactly what I wanted to communicate. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> Well, let, let's segue into and that is the essence. Yeah, let's segue into I think sure. it might have been your next book, Lessons from the Art of Juggling, or were there some in between? So uh, body learning was the first. Mm -hmm. Then present yourself, captivate your audience with great presentation skills. Okay. Then lessons from the art of juggling, then thinking for a change. Samurai chess, co-authored with the chess columnist of the London Times. Then How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, the How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci workbook, Discover Your Genius, and it goes on from there. Okay. So um, I wanted to talk about the juggling, but there was a book, Present Yourself, in between. Where did that come from? Well, it was a great labor of love to write body learning, to write the thesis, and then turn it into a book. And... It took me a little while to recover from how intense that whole process was. But then I thought, this is a wonderful way to consolidate my and deepen my own knowledge of subject that I'm interested in the process of writing. And at that point, I was already traveling around the world, giving keynote speeches and leading seminars. And I was working with a genius named Tony Buzan. He and I were often teaching together. We developed a five-day retreat called the Mind and Body Seminar, which we did together starting on 1978-79, right through, I think we did the last one together in the late 1990s. So I was thinking, what do I want to learn more about and consolidate my knowledge of that would be most helpful to the people that I serve. So, well, I, I know a lot about this. People say I'm pretty good at it. Why don't I consolidate what I know and try to help other people? Mm. So that became my present yourself, which my, my most, my most recent book is actually mastering the art of public speaking Eight Secrets to Transform Fear and Supercharge Your Career, because it was time. Present Yourself was published in 1988, and it went out of print in 2018. So it had a nice long run. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, wow, I have learned a lot about public speaking in that time period. Let's do the new version. So that's Mastering the Art of Public Speaking. Gotcha. I'm curious, how many how much of your books is this? This is what I know and I'm going to share it versus this is what I'm finding out while I'm writing the book. Both, both, both. I'd say it's it depends on on different books that some books, there's more discovery during the writing. Other books are more just a consolidation of what what I've already I've already learned, but there's always new learning because when you write, if you're what I a responsible writer, 
you write your sentence and then you say, is there a better way to say this? Is there a simpler, clearer way to say this? Mm -hmm. And you do that like you're prepping a bonsai tree. Uh Because what I think am I remembering correctly? I was reading far into the night, so I might have been hallucinating at some point. I think you mentioned uh, Adyashanti. Sure. Yes. So, you know, he talks about like his his spiritual journey involved journaling and writing to the end of his knowledge. And he would sit there in the coffee shop with his pen poised until he could think of another true thing to say. And I kind of have a sense just intuitively that's that's kind of how you write. I can. Yes, that's that's I I mean, I make a mind map and I put down everything I, I know and think I know about the subject and even what I don't know, I, questions I have about it. I, I've learned this is part of what I teach. So it helps. I actually apply what I teach to writing all these books. I generate it all first, let my mind go free, and then it self-organizes. Mm. It almost puts itself together, it writes itself. When When you understand that process, it writes itself. You just have to show up. And, and you can see I have my colored pens. I have my mind map paper. I still do this every day to run my enterprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we interviewed Adyashanti for the healing organization. And he's, he's, he's a wonderful being, just super cool guy. Yeah, I was when I was looking at who, you, who was involved in the project, I was, I was feeling a little positively envious like boy it'd be fun to well that's the fun thing one of the great things is find one of the big secrets of life is figure out a way to get paid to be with whoever you would most like to be with or talk to well, that, <laughs> manage that so far for 45 years that's what i'm doing with this with this podcast except for the get paid part yeah but you know Still, I get to talk to you for free. I don't have to, you know, fly across the country to go to a workshop. I'm, I'm still ahead. Um, Absolutely, very cool. <laughs> so let's talk about juggling, just because it's so much fun. And after after I read Body Learning, sure. I think you talked about juggling some in Body Learning. And I was in London, and I be- yes. I became a juggler, and I was trying to, you know, practice the intellectual aspects of Alexander technique as I was bloodying my lip repeatedly with clubs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> balls and beanbags were so easy. And the minute I started doing clubs, I felt like I was like attacking myself, but, uh, <laughs> right. That's wild. Yeah. What? Juggling is one of the great passions of my life. So I, I haven't done it in a year. I, have, I still have a, a gym bag full of all the stuff because obviously, you, you know, you buy, um, you know, 54 pound clubs from Oddball. You never get rid of them. But I just haven't juggled in a long time. Can you re-inspire me and the listeners? So for, for those of you who are listening, wow. Michael is juggling three <laughs> right now. It looks like two tennis balls and a green ball. The green ball was from, I did a juggling thing yesterday for St. Patrick's Day. Ah. Uh, let's see, here's, and here, uh, this ball 
you see the letters on it. It says IBM. Yep, it's a red ball. This is from a juggling workshop I did for a thousand IBM engineers in a big hotel ballroom. I taught them all how to juggle. We use it as a metaphor for the process of learning. Uh-huh. Because learning anything involves keeping a number of balls up in the air, so to speak, not getting too upset when they drop. And the way we teach it is we get people to pick up the balls for one another and focus on the throw rather than the catch and their own poise rather than trying to get it right. And the beauty of that is balls start to land in people's hands and people who think they don't have hand-eye coordination or they could never learn this suddenly find they're doing something that they thought they could never do. And it's a huge breakthrough for them. You hear these rooms full of people when I'm teaching this and people shriek with delight. But the Mm. other thing that's cool is people who are already able to juggle three, I help them do four. If they can do four, I help them do five because it gets even more interesting as you get to the higher levels of performance in any discipline, because then they're very small shifts can make dramatic, big differences. Right. And when, you know, when I returned to the States after that year in London, I got a job teaching at a small Quaker school. And of course, you know, juggling was the number one thing I was going to teach them. And this idea of inhibition that when I could that all of a sudden I could see what uncoordination was, it was making an inappropriate movement. And so just asking the kid who couldn't catch to hold their hand out, to hold their palm out, and I was going to throw the ball and they weren't to move their hand. And I would throw the ball far away from them and their hand would jerk. And I would do it over and over again to extinguish that response. And then I would throw it and it would land in their hand. And they were a different person from that moment. Again, I'm so thrilled. That's, that is an exercise from body learning. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly what we figured out. I just figured, I figured this all out because I love juggling. I wanted to learn, but the person I asked to teach me was a great juggler, but he was not a good teacher. He literally said, take these three balls, throw them up. Don't let any of them drop. <laughs> and that's what inspired me. I thought, I thought there has to be a better way. And then I thought, how can I apply the principles of the Alexander technique to learning how to juggle? And that's when I went from just being an okay juggler to being an excellent juggler. I mean, I wound up juggling on stage with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones with Bob Dylan Ooh, I think I got to segue into those stories. (laughs) What do you want to know? How the hell did you get those gigs? First of all, I was so I had a I had a juggling partner. His name was Tim Timberlake. He was actually the science editor for Reuters in Europe at the time. I met him on Portobello Road because I was going there to juggle and and make some shillings and pence. And while I was walking along Portobello Road, I saw a rubber chicken flying through the air and I followed the rubber chicken and Tim was juggling it. And we started this double act. So one day we were practicing in Hyde Park. And a fellow just approached us and he said, I'm the road manager for the Rolling Stones. 
We need jugglers for the carnival theme for this year's tour. What, what year was this? We'll give you 50 pounds if you, if you come to uh, Earl's Court tonight and juggle on stage with Mick and the Stones. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what, what year was this? <laughs> I think it was 76. Wow. Yeah, it was the year when the Stones were at the Nebworth Rock Festival, because then they invited us to the to juggle at the Nebworth Rock Festival, which was at 100,000 people on this giant stage shaped like Mick Jagger's mouth. And Tim and I were out on the tip of the tongue juggling a rubber chicken, a big kitchen fork, and a turnip. And the key part of the act was you throw up the turnip and you let it land on the kitchen fork. It's a great moment, except we both missed together the first time we tried it. So it's a great thing that early on in my career, I had 100,000 people laughing at me, which was fun. <laughs> then they threw the turnips back up to us. We tried it again, and this time it was perfect. <laughs> and I'll never forget the roaring of the crowd. Bring on the stones, bring on the stones. <laughs> Get these guys off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but we met Mick Jagger and the rest of the Stones. Paul McCartney was backstage there. Jack Nicholson. It was a fun, it was a really fun experience. The truth is, I was not a big rock fan at that time. Uh -huh. But I had some friends who adored the Stones and loved Bob Dylan. And I got them free tickets to the, to the concert. One of those... Still a buddy of mine. He's just like, I still can't believe you got me into the stones right in the front. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, ever, you ever have the urge to write a book, uh, you know, The Wisdom of Mick Jagger? I'll leave that to uh, to my friend who's a big fan. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, so we've done we've done juggling. We've done a little on presenting on Alexander Technique. Uh, think like Leonardo da Vinci. I read Thinking for a Change, um, and I didn't read Thinking oh, like great. Leonardo. Wow, well done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't read Thinking like Leonardo da Vinci because it was in a movie, and I was in a snobbish phase of my life, and so I figured anything that was popular wasn't worth my attention. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's never too late. Yep. It's, uh, it's uh, plus you. You kindly gave me access to the course that I'm going through. The, uh, yes. the thinking like Leonardo, yes, the uh, genius mastery course on thinking like Leonardo da Vinci. Um, yes, so that's we we've made this during during the pandemic. We put together what is thus far my ultimate legacy project, which is the six and a half hours of very high quality video. 38 video lessons, 23 practical explorations. Someday soon, it's going to be a hologram of me teaching. So it's a way that people can go through my intensive three-day course at home and paced by themselves. It's, it's, uh, we're very, very pleased with it. When I say we, the videographer, just a, did a masterful job. And we had a sponsor. We have a sponsor who's who just put out the money to do the whole thing because he just believes in it and wants. We want every kid in the world 
to grow up with the seven Da Vinci principles. We want business to be influenced by these principles. And the course goes way, you know, the book is, is tremendous. I obviously the book, it's my most successful book because it has a lot of the, it's the same kind of wisdom that's in all my other books, but it, it connected with a global archetype. Leonardo is the global archetype for the fulfillment of human potential. So that's the reason it's the most popular of my books. The reason it was in the Italian job movie. And I think it's getting close to 800,000 copies in print in 25 languages is it's the same universal wisdom that's in all my other books, but it's the messenger of it, the unique purveyor of it in this case is the, the Womo Universale, the universal human, mm -hmm. Leonardo da Vinci. So, and I did feel, I felt from the time I was growing up, a special connection with him. My grandmother, Rosa, was an Italian painter. And she told me about Leonardo when I was seven or eight years old. And he seemed to me like Superman. So when, when Tony Bizan and I started teaching this mind and body seminar, Tony shared with me that Leonardo was his hero too. And that mind mapping, which he created, was partly inspired by Tony's study of Leonardo's notes, along with Thomas Edison's notes. So ultimately, I went on and wrote How to Think Like Leonardo and Innovate Like Edison. <laughs> Um, yeah, so what would I want to ask about that? Um, what did you, like, what did you hear from people about, cause you know, I'm imagining like the, the body, the books that had come before sort of the body, they were kind of a little bit sort of, I don't want to say esoteric, but they weren't mainstream and you know, you were finding people like me, right. Who are already sort of open to this. <laughs> But but you know having a book that then goes mainstream with these concepts, it, it kind of you know you you hit a different you know sort of like the 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 chasm you know Jeffrey Moore's sort of innovation chasm like now all of a sudden this stuff is going mainstream. I'm imagining there's there's ways in which there's concern about it getting watered down and turned into slogans, and ways in which you wanted to kind of nurture this wisdom and have it have a broad impact and yet remain integral. What was, am I imagining all that or did that? The... Well, that's part of why we made the video. That's part of why we made the video. And I mean, I just, I just do what I do. <laughs> and I haven't, I'm mean, thrilled, of course, that I had this, a, a genuine global bestseller. The real thing. Yes, success is fun. It's good. I, I, I do have to confess, I, I prefer. <laughs> uh, I like getting big royalty checks yeah. versus yeah. no royalty checks. It's much, much you mean, better. You mean that writing books that nobody reads isn't as much fun as writing books that people read? I've got to try. I got to well, try that. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> yeah. No, I wouldn't go that far. 
because I've had of the 17 books, some have been read by only a few esoteric Konyoshenti and my relatives. <laughs> Most actually. <laughs> well, if you know, so what, what I, that you can see behind me for those who, who are seeing us, they're, they're the 17 books so far. Okay, now on the shelf next to and, the, next to the gnome and the, and the, and the geode. Yeah. The gnome is Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. Right. And the, and, and the, if you see the blue crystal head on its side, yep. that's, that was my brain of the year award <laughs> that I won from the brain foundation in 1999. And behind that is the photograph of Jason Statham and most deaf holding my book in the Italian job. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. And then just above are the books. Uh -huh. So what I sometimes do is I go from book to book for, just for myself. I look at them and I think, what was my most important learning? What was, what was the great blessing that came from this book because people say how long did it take you to write this book or this there, it's a body of work and it's an evolution that is an expression of a larger expression of my journey thus far what i've learned and what i think can help other people so people say well which one should i start with i say it depends what's most important for you right now tell me more about that and then then I can, I can recommend something. But I've never, I, I haven't written, even though I've written for a reader to try to benefit someone, and I've done my best to make it as engaging and as much fun and enjoyable and clear as it can be, I've never started with the premise, how can I write something that will be a bestseller or how can I write something that will make a lot of money? Mm. Uh, the fact that I got a bestseller and body learning is a bestseller. It's been in print for over 40 years. It's not a top of the charts all at once bestseller. It's a, Oh my God, this is, this is still selling 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. So it's a different kind of bestseller, but some of those, Aren't, <laughs> but the the their what they mean in terms of my own learning and experience and how important I think the message is. What I want to get out to the world, you know, I just keep doing that. I just keep doing that because it's that journey and that process that is that's everything really. There is. So what? I mean, it's great to have a bestseller. If you if you get it, it's good. It's better than a flop. Enjoy it. But then people go on to the next thing. <laughs> You'll, so you can't be you can't be too attached to the external result. It's it's cool when it's a, a wonderful positive one, but everything has. It's opposite. It becomes, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't want to be too famous.
Yeah. I think I could handle being too rich because then I can just be more of a philanthropist. Uh huh. You can't give away fame. Right. Well, the only, the only fame is only useful to me. Power, like my interest in power, is the power to help other people. Yeah. You know, people write to me and they say, "Could you endorse my book?" I'll read it if I can, if I if I can find anything in it that I can endorse. I will do anything I can to help. I love what a great thing to have the power. People want you to. Can you bless this thing? Can you help me in some way? Mm. Well, can we go back in time six months and I'll- that, that's, that's that's one of the big secrets. Is that's that's the meaning of life is helping other people. Period. I, w- I wish we could go back in time six months and I could send you my manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did, you can still send it to me. I'll still endorse it for you. If, if uh, uh, thanks, I'm sure it's fabulous uh, knowing you. Uh, so maybe I will write how to time travel like Einstein. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so let's um, let's spend a minute on thinking like Leonardo da Vinci. And now I'm thinking about taking your your editor's advice and thinking about the listeners. What's something for these days that you think would sort of be universally useful for people who are, you know, we're in a we're in a very sort of constipated intellectual time, just in terms of pandemic, things have felt sort of stuck, people are pushing too hard, the, you know, everyone's trying to pivot, but it's it's it can feel very sort of formulaic. And, and of course, times like this are when great creativity can emerge. What, you know, what's a thing that comes to mind for listeners that might be useful for them? The fact that Leonardo lived through pandemics far worse than anything we're going through. Mm. Far worse. 30% of the people in Milan died. 50% of the people in Florence died of the plague. It was the plague, perhaps more than anything else, that, that got people to start thinking creatively and gave birth to the Renaissance. Leonardo actually did city planning designed to create greater hygiene and what we today call social distancing to help respond to the plague. He responded to it with amazing creativity. Mm. So he's a fabulous example. And the seven principles that that I abstracted and wrote about in the book and teach in my seminars come from asking the question, what is Leonardo trying to teach us? So I read all his notebooks looking for what was the advice that he was giving to his students. And then I just abstracted that and translated into contemporary terms with lots of practices so you could, again, embody the principle and not just say, oh, that's fascinating. But here's how you can actually apply it in in your life. Okay. So you, you, you talk about colored pens and a notebook, right? As one, as one of the, like, that seems like a pretty, like, you know, whenever someone tells me, hey, go buy something cool. Like, like, I like that, you know? Like, what, what do I suppose, what are we supposed to do with pens and a notebook that will help us think more creatively and flexibly and usefully in the world? Well, if I told you that one of the pieces of advice that Leonardo gives to his students 
is have a little notebook, keep it with you wherever you go and write down your thoughts as they arise. If the greatest genius of all time gives you a piece of advice, you probably say, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll do that. But what if I told you that Thomas Edison said pretty much the exact same thing to all the workers in his lab? And what if we looked at pretty much every great genius and we found that this is something they all have in common? So in other words, the average person might wake up in the morning, four o'clock in the morning with a crazy idea. So they think I'm no genius, they go back to sleep. Hmm. But when Leonardo da Vinci wakes up with a crazy idea at four o'clock in the morning, or Marie Curie wakes up with a crazy idea at four o'clock in the morning, they write it down in their notebook. So creating this inner dialogue where you begin to bring your attention, you shine light on the subtle, quiet voice of your intuition. And that encourages that inner voice, that intuition. And the more you listen to it, the more clearly it will speak to you. So it's almost like it's not that being a genius causes you to write smart things down in your notebook. It's honoring and writing down the smart things in your notebook can show you that you have as much genius as anybody else. Well, it, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not as much. It's not quantitative. It's what's your unique expression? What's your highest potential? It's not the same as Leonardo da Vinci's or Thomas Edison's or Marie Curie's. Everybody has their own unique gift. And part of our time here is to find out, okay, well, what is it? And how do I express it? Boy, can you imagine how different the world would be if we all, if we had societies like organized around that principle? That's why I do what I do. <laughs> That's, that was the idea right from the beginning. Right. So it reminds me of, um, you know, I've been reading recently the work of uh, Molly Doma Some, who's a, um, I think, I can't, I think Burkina Faso uh, shaman um, who he died recently. And so I've been rereading some of his stuff. And he was talking about the, and by the way, he was basically um, kidnapped by missionaries and raised in the Western tradition and returned in his 20s to his village, a complete stranger, not really speaking the language anymore. You know, he got a Sorbonne education and his his life was then about being a bridge, explaining the two cultures to each other. And one of the things he would kept saying is that in my village, when a child is born, the village takes an interest in who that person is and they have to listen to the songs that are you know sung around it and, and how the baby responds and then they give the baby its name which is its destiny and like any it would be psychopathic for a village to not deeply care about who this person is and what they're here for and how how are they going to express themselves for our communal benefit and thinking that kind of western education is just the opposite and and the the western western education at least as we have it in, in the U.S., was sadly most 
influenced by the industrial revolution and the notion of producing people with the skills to feed capitalism. And it was based on this idea of, of the wealth of nations that prosperity, rising prosperity would benefit everyone and benefit the society. But what they missed was the other part of Adam Smith's essential work, which is the theory of moral sentiments that he wrote 17 years before the wealth of nations. And the theory of moral sentiments points out how the wealth of nations has to be predicated on fundamental universal values and the well-being of all the stakeholders in a society. Mm. So education, as we know it, was, was unfortunately crafted just to process people to take their place in the assembly line or the bureaucratic management structure and follow orders as opposed to thinking for themselves or thinking creatively, which is obviously what we need to do now in the world because of change mm. accelerating the way it has and then throw in the pandemic. So the ability to think like Leonardo is more relevant now probably than, than ever before in our lifetimes. Yeah. Boy, it really makes you wish Adam Smith had a marketing consultant who could have helped him with those titles. <laughs> like it's, it's, well, he did pretty well. It's not hard to predict which one was going to become more influential. <laughs> he was a he was a genius, Adam Smith, amazing genius, really genuinely looking to uplift the people who've been left behind in society. And there is a resurgence of that theory of moral sentiments idea in the world today as expressed in conscious capitalism, the B Corp movement, mm -hmm. uh, force for good movement. There's lots of wonderful folks working on this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my work with companies has always been in the framework of that, that wave of consciousness and compassion and creativity to transform business as the key to transforming society. Right. And so that's a great segue into the healing organization, which I think you published just before the pandemic um, occurred, began. Um, There's a beautiful YouTube video, it's about five minutes long of you speaking, I think, at a, to like future doctors or. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I love like you said, like the perp what if the purpose of business is right to end suffering and increase joy? I think basically I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, and it's such a shockingly high bar when we think about it, when we come at it from business school terms or from, and I, I love, I love how, you know, this is such a beautiful, generous book you and Raj Sisodia wrote, and you're also not afraid to point to, you know, good to great and Milton Friedman and say, these, these theories are, are impoverished from a humanistic perspective. I, I loved your guts. <laughs> In, in doing that. And it just it made me very happy. Can you talk about um, the healing organization? And, you know, and what, because it's, I was reading it, it's like, I need to get a copy for each of my kids because they are so down. They're so down on capitalism. And they've both been working the low end, food service, retail, you know, just seeing it at its worst. 
And they don't really have a sense that it could be any better. And this book has case study after case study based on a theoretical framework that I think could could really shake the world. And just it's not just based on a theoretical framework. It's based on the people who are really doing it. That's what's so cool that for Raj and I, the best part of writing the book was meeting the CEOs who are running the companies that are really doing this or at least aspiring to do it. I spoke with one of them uh, just the other day, Bob Chapman from the Barry Waymiller companies. Mm. And he's, he's such an inspiring guy. I mean, they've now acquired 130 companies. And these were companies that were desperate on the brink of industrial type companies in the Midwest who, where jobs were being outsourced to China or Latin America, uh, where whole communities were being devastated. And Bob would come in and buy up that company and then create what he calls truly human leadership and optimize the potential of all the stakeholders and treat people with care and dignity. And the result is not just that he's never sold any of these companies and he's made 17% a year average since he started doing this years and years ago. That's, that's better than any of the good to great companies, by the way. Uh, and and so, they start, they started out like selling stuff to like equipment to breweries, right? They had the, like this sort of old, yeah, old yeah, fashioned, very down home, basic manufacturing type type businesses. And Bob had a revelation. He was in church one Sunday and he realized that we're, we're under the care of the ministry of the church for one hour in the week. He said, but the people who work in my factories are effectively under my care for 40, 50, 60 hours a week. What am I doing to, to care for these people? What if, what if I viewed every single person as someone's precious child? See, now, if, you're, if your kids could meet a CEO who views everyone who's part of their enterprise with that kind of loving kindness and care, that would do more than them reading the book. Or So, so that's the thing is meeting these. And that's a lot of who I work with are people like that. They always have been, even before there was a name for all this, those were the people who always hired me anyway, as you might imagine. Yeah. The scorch the earth, exploit the worker types never hired me. So I got to meet lots of wonderful people over the years, which made me believe that this could be possible. And a number of them are in the book. Some of the people in the book are, are the actual real life clients of mine where I do executive coaching for the leadership team and, and I do leadership development programs for them. So that, that's, that's, that's what I actually do professionally besides write books and give keynote speeches. All right. So what would you say? So, you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs in the plant-based community. You know, I've interviewed people like Miyoko Shinner for, you know, Miyoko's Creamery, who is a phenomenal leader. And 
I mean, she, she recently posted on LinkedIn, we, you know, we made a mistake. We came out with this product. It wasn't up to our standards, but we thought that's what the market wanted. And we're, we apologize. We're removing it. We're taking a big financial hit and we're never going to stray from our values again. And for a CEO to kind of say that, like, I made a mistake. I got a little distracted by greed and I'm sorry. And I yeah. like, Beautiful. and there's, I you know there's a lot of people. That's healing leadership. Yeah. That's healing leadership. And there's a lot of people with great ideas. And I think a lot of people in the, in, in the healing the world movement restrict and keep themselves very, very small because they think that, you know, that growing big immediately means you have to become a master of scale. You have to um, depersonalize everything. You, right. There's no, there's no real playbook. There's no um, pattern language for for good people. Actually, that's what's evolving. That's what's evolving. I was I was on a podcast just went live yesterday called Simple Scaling, and it's how to scale your business with with a higher purpose. Mm. Uh, great great guy uh, uh, Brandon McGurgan mm. and his partner Claire have launched this uh, movement to help people scale their business and maintain a higher purpose. But it's true. It's a great challenge. The bigger you get, the harder it is to care for everybody and know everybody. But Bob Bob Chapman's managed to do it. Uh, Herb Kelleher managed to do it at Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. I'm working with uh, Chris Hillman, at Hillman Consulting, and he's doing it. They're, they're, I've worked with them for the last six years, and they have doubled in size in that time, and they're planning to pretty much double in size again over the next five years. Mm-hmm. And and the, I was talking, I did a coaching session with their chief strategy officer the other day. He said, I'm just, how are we going to maintain our values? How are we going to keep this family feeling? How are we going to give the sense of caring as we get this big? I said, well, part of how we're going to do it is that you, the chief strategy officer, that's what you're asking me in your coaching session, not how can I uh, you know, make more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, but- and they'll make more money because, because that's what they're passionately concerned about. Right. I think that is a stumbling block because we, we see – Lots of examples of of companies, you know, take Whole Foods Market, which was bought by Amazon. And I can't think of two cultures. You know, both of my kids worked have worked for Whole Foods um, before and sort of, you know, during the transition. You know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people on my LinkedIn feed who idolize and lionize Jeff Bezos as a as a son of a union organizer. I. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want, you know, I, I resent my reliance on Amazon. <laughs> you know, you told me about your book on Wednesday. I ordered or on Tuesday. I ordered it on Tuesday from Amazon. It was here Thursday. Like I can't, I wasn't going to find it at a local bookstore, but you know, there's, it's hard for me to think of certain, certain businesses where economies of scale don't end up becoming dehumanizing. Do you like are there are there ways of solving this? Uh, I'd love to get through to Jeff Bezos because he could be doing a lot more to make the world more beautiful, to, to alleviate suffering and elevate joy than, than he actually 
does. So part of it is, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. Mm-hmm. But business itself doesn't have a conscience. The question is, does Jeff Bezos uh, have one? Uh, and, and what's fascinating is to see if you want to know who's got a conscience in the billionaire class, then go to the Giving Pledge website and look, look who are the billionaires who've committed to give more than half their wealth to philanthropic causes. Warren Buffett, uh, Bill Gates, lots of wonderful, wonderful people there who recognize uh, that they can they can make a difference. But. What I call on people to do beyond even the giving pledge is to take what I call the healing oath, which is to, ex- to recognize that in the world today, more so than ever before, it matters how you make the money. So, you know, I was walking, I live right next to this uh, Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, and I walked through it the other day. Andrew Carnegie is buried there. Mm. And it's part of the Rockefeller Preserve. So Rockefeller and Carnegie were vying to see who would be the richest man in the world. And they they ruined a lot of lives and destroyed a lot of the planet in their quest to amass that much wealth. But then Carnegie gave away 90% of his wealth. And, and Rockefeller endowed amazing humanitarian projects that still benefit the world today. Because the old model was scorch the earth, exploit the worker, business is dog eat dog, accumulate the wealth, and then give it away. So you don't go to hell. Hmm. The new model is it matters how you make the money. So treat all your stakeholders with care and dignity. Treat everyone as Bob Chapman counsels, like someone's precious child. But here's here's the truly astonishing, world-changing fact. You'll make more money over time if you do that. And that's that's based on the research of my co-author, Professor Raj Sisodia, who wrote the book Firms of Endearment many years ago that was the first book that profiled from a business school perspective this business model based on the theory of moral sentiments and, and putting people first, not just as a slogan, but as a functional reality. And he looked at the financial performance of companies who do that against the financial performance of the companies profiled in Jim Collins, good to great. Mm-hmm. And the firms of endearment companies outperform the good to great companies financially, not to mention that people love these companies and they make the world better and that the good to great companies include Philip Morris, Wells Fargo, and Circuit City, which is now out of business. Mm-hmm. So one one of the things I was... I was so higher uh, purpose pays off. So, so one of the things I was challenged by was just the idea uh, that wealth is, that wealth of, to that degree is okay at all. You know, I'm sort of a Bernie fan. So the idea that there are billionaires at all feels like a failure to me. And your book doesn't doesn't appear to come to that conclusion that it's okay to amass great wealth as long as you do it in a way that benefits others. But I'm th- you know, I think like just in terms of how the game is played, if there is this degree of inequality, 
doesn't that always lead to inequities in in life? Like, should shouldn't we be aiming for a system in which that it mimics nature more? That that there's abundance for all without hoarding. Well, I just I just frame it differently. I'm not I'm not worried so much about in other words the way that that happens from my point of view is empowering the people who currently aren't sharing in that abundance and removing the incentive to exploit those people and you know what what here's what Adam Smith said he said that when that happens if there is too much of of a gap to the detriment of most of the people, he said the people will rise up. He said the people will shame those and appeal to the conscience of those who are hoarding the wealth and not utilizing it to make a better world. And We'll see if that actually happens or not. I mean, uh, it's to pretend that I have all the answers to that would be a, a pretense I'm not prepared to make. I just know that, you know, I want to get, if I, if anybody knows Jeff Bezos, I'll send him a complimentary book. <laughs> I'll do a complimentary executive coaching session for right. him. <laughs> if you know Elon Musk, uh, I, and I did my best. I have friends who are in, in uh, powerful positions and very well connected. I just gave them free books. And I said, hand these when you're at one of these meetings of investors for this big enterprise you're in. Here's a signed copy of the book for all those people. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Well, it's. You know who else is buried in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery? Uh, you'll be you'll be pleased to hear this uh, from your lineage is Samuel Gompers, ah, the AFL CIO, the founder of the AFL, American Federation of Labor. Okay. He's buried in the same cemetery as Carnegie. Oh, uh, there's there's still and uh, Chrysler, by the way. Chrysler, okay, Chrysler's there too. And notice that they're all dead, and so will all of us be. So what's your legacy? Did you make the world a more beautiful place? Did you alleviate suffering and elevate human joy with your great power? Mm. Right. And as, as I'm as I'm listening to you and thinking about the big picture, there's a, there's a lot of sort of nits to pick about the details. But what you're talking about is such a fundamental shift that like I look forward to when everyone is embracing conscious capitalism and then we can have these other debates. Right, exactly. Then it's then it's fine. It's fine tuning. The big shift is is this research validated notion that by caring for all of your stakeholders, and one of those stakeholders, one of the critical stakeholders is the earth, you will your enterprise will be more successful. Right. And for many of the spiritual traditions you and I have studied, you know, the earth is a living being, right? It's not just, okay, what's the, um, what's the financial value of the Everglades? You know, how, (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. That's the Henry Ford. That's the, 
that's the that's you know Martin Buber covered all this. That's I it yeah. versus I thou. And and the healing organization is an I thou approach to doing business. Mm-hmm. So is conscious capitalism. So is the B Corp movement. So is force for good. And and this is there is a huge upsurge. This is a movement with different forms. People are getting this, that it's it's urgent, it's critically important. So I just I just want to be doing everything within my power to waking people up to that movement. And look, there's three three kinds of companies that we profile in the healing organization. There are those who are easy, or people who are idealists who start out with the notion of creating an enterprise to help make a difference in the world. Then there are people who generally had, you know, good upbringings and were good, decent human beings who are trying to do their best through business, but didn't really realize what was possible. But then are the, the, to me, the most interesting people, the people who are just scorching the earth and exploiting workers, because that's what they learned to do in business school. And they had an awakening of conscience and they changed what they did. There's the, one of the stories in the book is a story of this business in Costa Rica called FIFCO. And it's just fantastic what they've done. Mm-hmm. And it was one gentleman having this awakening and realizing that all these environmentalists who he had to deal with when he used to work at RJ Reynolds uh-huh. or Philip Morris, one of the, he, so he was helping to kill people and, and he had to deal with all these regulators and then he moved to take over this company that made alcoholic beverages and sugary soft drinks in, in Central America. So we, he moved to another, from one way of killing people to make money to another way of killing people to make money. And he, then he just had this aha. One day he said, what if I treated these regulators and activists and environmentalists as stakeholders instead of as the enemy? What if I paid attention to what they're trying to tell mm. me? And he transformed everything he did, became one of the greatest places to work. People come from all over the world to meet him and see what they're doing so that they can do it too. It's just, there's a lot of, people just don't know that it's possible to to do good, to to alleviate suffering, to elevate joy and, and generate wild abundance. But it is, Bob Chapman's proof of that, FIFCO's proof of that, Hillman Consulting's proof of that. Yeah, so- my final question around this is, I you know I try to put myself in the in in the mindset of like you know Zuckerberg or Bezos or Musk or people with 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 the with the money to change the world. It's not just the money to get a jet or not get a jet or endow a library, but the money to honestly change the world. And they're not doing it, and they're actually like. To me, it's a you know they're they're obviously way smarter than I am, right? They're like I could give them your book, and I don't know that it would do any good because it's a they're they're coming to the world from a trauma response, and I'm wondering how yes. how do we right like it's this, it's this either virtuous or vicious cycle. People are raised in this society that that teaches us that we are atomized, we are competitive with each other, there's only so much to go around. If you're smarter than everybody else, that gives you license to become a master of the universe and no one, you know, no one has to listen you don't have to listen to anyone. 
what are what do you see as not just the intellectual, not just the Leonardo da Vinci brilliance, but a kind of softening or even you know dissolution or breaking of the ego into a into a crisis that can allow people to make those changes? Because because for someone to say, okay, yesterday, well, I think yeah, yeah, go ahead. These are big, big. These are big picture global shifts of consciousness. And so I look at the zeitgeist and, and I feel like part of our mission is to bring more geist to the zeit, (laughs) more spirit to the time. time. Right. So zeitgeist is German for spirit of the times. So zeit is, is time and geist is like ghost. Spirit. So the zeitgeist is the spirit of the times. And we have, this is a time to bring forth more spirit. Here's the the amazing thing is, right now all of us have access instantaneously and pretty much for free to all the great spiritual teachings of the world. I was, I was, talking to a friend the other day and he told me that his main spiritual teacher of his life was pure Vilayat Khan. So I thought, Oh, I want to connect with my friend. And I went on YouTube and I did an hour of breathing practice with pure Vilayat Khan because it's there for Mm. free. (laughs) I mean, maybe I pay a couple of bucks so I don't have to have my breathing with a Sufi saint interrupted by a commercial. (laughs) but I'm, ha- I'm happy to, that's value for money. I'm happy to pay that. Uh, so this this gives me hope that there, the downside is there's more rubbish, spam, hypnotic, evil garbage trying to suck your nervous system and never give it back propagated on all these platforms. So that knows why I teach what I teach is you have to become a curator of your soul Learn to look after your own soul. Learn to radiate I, thou, loving kindness, forgiveness, the higher universal spiritual teachings of of all traditions. And then you can think about how to change other people and, and, and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. So make sure that what you're contributing to the, to, to consciousness, to the field every day is love and not anger or resentment or mm. even though it's, it's, it's legitimate and I, I share the outrage. I share outrage. I mean, I'm outraged when I, you know, I, I follow Bernie on Twitter because he's just, I'd love to get him a copy of the book too because part of the problem is People from the right say, oh, we're not, we, we can't do the healing organization because it's communism. Anything that tries to make people live better, you know, that smacks of socialism, whatever. But the problem on the left is they say, no, business is all evil. We have to just uh, tax everybody and take everything and distribute it through government. Well, that's disaster too, in my, in my view. Uh, I am a radical moderate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, who says how, how do we how do we how do we use our creativity how do we use the incredible abundance of our society how do we help people understand 
that they will be much more fulfilled by helping others and that you can you know you can still enjoy incredible abundance but so can there what's greater than helping other people experience more abundance than they might have had previously there's a story in the healing organization of a leader who did that in India with 40,000 women from one of the lower castes. He elevated their lives, transformed them. They love this guy. It's such a fabulous story. So this is happening. We can do it. That's what I want to be part of. And that's why I, I, I teach this stuff so that other people can get more resources to help be part of this as well. Beautiful. So I'm looking at the time. I'm actually a minute late for a coaching call. So I apologize to my coaching client. You know, you'll, you'll know who you are. Um, I want to make sure that people can find you online. Where, where should they go to look for you and, uh, and follow your work? Thank you. Really simple. MichaelGelb.com. G-E-L-B. MichaelGelb.com. You can get a link to all my books, lots of free articles, lots of uh, videos and podcasts, all the information about the online course and also information about my coaching practice, michaelgelb.com, G-E-L-B. Fabulous. Michael, it has been such an honor and a pleasure to get to know you. Um, thank you for this this conversation. Really fun, man. And uh, I can't wait till some, someday we'll meet in person and uh, maybe pass, pass six, six clubs. Let's do it. Absolutely. Okay. Not, we won't do the flaming ones. I gave up the flaming clubs about 40 years All right, ago. Well, I'm going to start practicing with turnips and forks. Excellent. And chickens, chickens. too. V vegan, vegan chickens. Vegan chickens. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. And that's a wrap to a conversation from my perspective, 34 years in the making. Uh, you want to find out more about Michael, check out his books, his YouTubes, his courses. You can find all that linked in the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 509. Okay, running or movement news, been doing a lot of ultimate lately and sprinting. So playing uh, games and running as hard as I can in little bitty sprints. Yesterday, last night, played in a uh, local recreation league and uh, had to cover and be covered by some people in their 20s, which was challenging and humbling. And there were times when I really just felt like <laughs> giving up. Uh, but I'm doing it because because I love it. And uh, I was going to get faster and stronger and remind myself that my league is all people my age and older. Um, in garden news, we are taking care of the back of the garden, which typically goes to crabgrass and weeds. So trying to get ahead of that. And the blueberries are now in bud. We're hoping we're not going to have another cold snap that's going to kill them and confuse the plants. And things are starting to grow. Also put a bunch of potatoes in the ground in a bed that I hand hoed. Um, good thing, too, because I found hundreds and hundreds of earthworms. And if I'd used the tiller, they, they would not have survived. But I, I'm pretty sure that uh, the ones who even got cut in half by the hoe uh, can regenerate thanks to the miracle of nature. So I'm hoping that I've uh, supported the earthworm population through my gardening efforts. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 